So to that end, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would guide my lips, that I might speak faithfully to these, your beloved people. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians 1. Uh, we're going to return to Philippians after one week away last week uh, for our conversation about how do we follow Jesus faithfully in the midst of COVID. Uh, so we're returning to this series that is relatively new. This is just the third week into it, and we are going to be looking at uh, verses 9 to 11 of chapter 1 this morning. Uh, when I was in Bible school quite a number of years ago now, there were a lot of things that I learned um, some of them had nothing to do with the Bible. Uh, for example, one of the things that I learned was uh, about a potato cannon. I hadn't even heard of a potato cannon. Some of you perhaps have. But I, I saw some other guys in the dorm making one. They, they took a bunch of empty pop cans and they cut out the ends and they duct taped them together. It was a very Canadian thing. And, and then with a, a source of fuel and, and some projectile in there, you could launch it. And it was pretty intriguing. Uh, and I thought, hey, I could do that. But, but I had a vision of making one a little bit more robust and durable. So after a trip to the hardware store, I picked up some ABS pipe and a barbecue lighter and a few other things. Uh, I managed to manufacture my first ever potato cannon. Now, I, I should tell you at this point that, that medical science has determined that the prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain responsible for decision-making, and reasoning and impulse control is not fully developed till around the age 25. I was about 19 at the time. So I made this and uh, thankfully, by God's grace, decided not to launch a potato. Instead, a little, you know, those stress balls, it fit perfectly into this ABS pipe. And so I uh, had a fuel source. It was all ready. Me and, and a couple buddies thought, okay, we got to give this a test shot. And so by God's grace, we decided not to shoot someone but to shoot near someone. It was late at night. We went to a friend's dorm room, and the plan was, this was a, a concrete block building, that my friend would open the door, and I would fire it at the concrete block right above the sleeping head of my friend. I'd never shot this before. I didn't know whether it would work or what would happen. But I was careful to aim, and they opened the door, and I pulled the, the, the lighter trigger, and it worked brilliantly. It was the loudest bang I think I'd heard. Flames shot out of this, along with this stress ball that hit the block that I was aiming at dead on. Now, I do confess it was not a kind way to wake someone, <laughs> but it was a little bit of fun. This morning, as we return to our study of the, the letter to the Philippians, we're looking at Paul's prayer, the second part of his prayer for these believers. And as we'll see, Paul's prayer focuses specifically on the lives of these Christians, specifically on what they are aiming at. The aim of their lives, the, the goal of their lives in Christ, the target. Paul prays that they might progress in their Christian lives for the glory of God, that they, they might grow. That, that is what they are to aim at. That is to be the target. Christian growth, growth in their lives as followers, as disciples of Jesus. Our aim is to progress in our lives with Christ, to grow in Christ. That's the target, to grow in our lives with Christ for His glory. 
growing for his glory. Now, I spent some time a number of weeks ago sharing some of the context. I just want to touch a couple of things briefly. Paul is writing to these believers about a dozen years or so after he planted this church. The church at Philippi is the first church uh, planted in Europe. I remember Paul was in Troas, had a dream of a man from this region saying, please come and help us. And so Paul and his companions got in a ship. They sailed uh, across the water and, and landed off the shore there, and they traveled to Philippi, this Roman colony, this city that's uniquely uh, loyal to Rome as a city that was designated as a Roman colony. People were gifted with citizenship, and that will be a factor later on in our series. And, and Paul writes to them uh, to deal with two primary concerns. One, they are experiencing suffering. There is some external opposition that they are facing. And secondly, there is some internal strife, some internal relational conflict that is going on. And so we will see both those things. Now, two weeks ago, we looked at the first part of a prayer report. Um, Paul shares with the Philippians uh, what he prays for them. And in the first part of his prayer report, he shares how he expresses his thankfulness to God for them with joy for their partnership in the gospel, that he's regularly praying for them, always with joy. He's so thankful for their partnership. That is, they are with him in gospel ministry, not only supporting Paul, but living as ambassadors for the gospel in the city of Philippi. So he expresses his gratitude, his affection for them, his joy in what God is doing in them, what God has done, is doing, and will do. Remember, Paul says that he is confident that God, who began a good work in them, will carry it to completion. Now we come to the second part of his prayer report, where he shifts from gratitude to God, expressing thanksgiving to God, to uh, him praying for the Philippians praying uh, for God's work in their lives. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along as I read Philippians 1, verses 9 to 11. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Of God. Uh, four things I want to do with you, uh, four matters, four questions that we will look at this morning. First, how are we supposed to grow? As in, in what ways are we supposed to grow? Second, uh, why are we supposed to grow? Third, uh, what are the means? What's the means by which we grow? And fourth, the end for which we strive to grow. So, how are we supposed to grow? Why are we grow? Uh, the means by which we grow and the end for which we grow. We'll spend most of our time here at the first uh, question, how are we supposed to grow? In what ways? It's worth noting just as we begin that verses 9 to 11 forms one single and fairly complicated uh, sentence. Uh, It's phrase after phrase after phrase, and it can be a little bit difficult to try and unpack what phrase is modifying which phrase and in what way, how how does this all work together? It's challenging, not insurmountable, but uh, worth noting as we begin. Uh, The first question, how are we supposed to grow? In what ways is Paul praying for the Philippians to grow? Uh, His first and central concern is that they would grow in their love. We read in verse 9, and this is my prayer, and this is the central part of this prayer, that your love may abound more and more. Uh, Context demands, and context shows us that the love that Paul is praying for is not a a love for God. They they love God. That's not what Paul is going to address in this letter, that somehow their love for God is insufficient. 
But what he will address is that their love for one another uh, is insufficient, that they need to love one another. And so here, the context demands that this is love for one another that he's praying for. Uh, This prayer is actually reminiscent of a prayer that Paul prayed and wrote years earlier to the Thessalonians where we read this. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else just as ours does for you. So there he speaks of his love for them and that their love is to overflow. Here he's saying, I pray that your love might abound more and more, having just talked about his own love for them in the thanksgiving. His desire, his prayer is that their love will increase, that their love will grow, that their love will abound more and more. But what exactly is he getting at? What exactly is he praying for? That they would feel more affection for one another? Is this sort of warm, sentimental feelings towards one another? Though we certainly wouldn't want to exclude uh, the notion of affection, uh, that is clearly not what is primary here. Love is a pretty common word for us. I think you'd agree with me. We use it rather regularly. Uh, I think often in ways that we don't really think about deeply. Like, I I love it when I get a green light. I I love coffee. I love watching sports, especially when my team wins. Like, we we use that word all the time, right? I'm sure you could fill in the blank. I love. When, 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 in what context do you say that? We say it all the time. So, so what does Paul mean when he says, I want your love to abound more and more? He's, he's not simply saying, I, I want you to feel positively. You know, we, we use it when we feel positively about something. Oh, I, I love getting a green light. I love it when there's not traffic. I feel positive about that. That's not what he's getting at here. Paul actually provides us a great description of love in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We often call uh, chapter 13 the love chapter. I just want to draw your attention to two phrases there. In verse 4 of chapter 13, 1 Corinthians, Paul says, love is patient. Love is kind. Now, we may be tempted to just kind of skim past that. Okay, yeah, yeah, like I've heard it. But, but those are actually very, very significant terms that he's using. Uh, First, when he says love is patient and love is kind, Paul is speaking about both the active and the passive side of love. Love is patient. Uh, Love endures. The King James Version says uh, love is long-suffering. The idea is that that love endures the the garbage, the the difficulties that one receives or experiences in a relationship. Love endures. Love is patient. And actively, for love to be kind, it's about doing good for the benefit, acting for the benefit of the other. So both the passive side of love, enduring, and the active side of love, doing for the benefit of, love is patient, love is kind, that's what that's getting at. And more significant than that, just the the meaning of those terms is the fact that those same terms are used by Paul and elsewhere in Scripture to speak of God. God is patient. God is kind. God is long-suffering. He endures. We were His enemies. We were sinners. And God was patient. He waited. He put up with. He endured. And God is kind. God has acted in love towards us. He has acted for our benefit. Most most powerfully in sending His Son Jesus who went to the cross and bore the penalty that our sins deserved 
so that through faith in him we might be redeemed. I've often shared these two phrases with, with couples when I do pre-marriage counseling. They, they, when I ask, what text can I speak on at your wedding, a, a number of times over the years, uh, 1 Corinthians 13 has been suggested. And it's a great text, but the reality is what we need to understand is that 1 Corinthians 13 was not written for couples who are feeling really positively about one another in, in the bliss of early love and engagement. It's very appropriate for marriage, don't get me wrong, but it's written to a church, a church that is failing to love one another well. This, this is what God calls us to as his people, to love one another with a love that is both passive, that is we're patient with one another, we put up with the garbage, with the difficulties, with the challenges that come. And that we love with a love that is active, kind. We do good. We, we act in such a way for the benefit of others. That's the context here. That's what Paul says. I pray that your love might abound more and more. That's the first thing that Paul prays for, that in their relationships with one another, they would have the mindset of Christ, to paraphrase a verse that we will encounter later on in this letter. The second thing that Paul prays is, I want to contend for a similar increase in knowledge and insight. Now, this is one of the tricky moments in the text. Uh, we read verse 9 here, love abounding more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So, is knowledge and depth of insight modifying love, or is it... Is it a subsequent thought that Paul wants them to abound more and more in love and more and more in knowledge and insight? At the end of the day, I, I think it, it's, it's the same difference, but I think it makes more sense to think that, uh, and how the sentence is constructed, that it's pointing to a, a second thing, that he wants their love to abound. He also wants their knowledge and insight to abound. Let's, let's look at that. He wants their love to abound. They would love with the love of Christ. They would love one another. Uh, he also wants their knowledge to abound. Uh, by knowledge, Paul is not simply saying that they're the information, that they would have more, that their brains would be full. The word knowledge here speaks of knowing through experience, uh, the experience of a relationship. He wants their knowledge to grow through their relationship with God, not just knowing about God, but he wants them to know God as they love God, as they follow God, as they seek him. That it would be an experiential, relational knowledge and knowing of God. He wants that to increase or that to shape their love. Either way, we're still talking about the same thing. And the second word translated in the NIV as depth of insight it is a word that appears only here in the New Testament. But elsewhere in the Greek world, it's, it's a word that carries the idea of moral insight. Biblically, the idea of wisdom would help here. Now, biblically, wisdom is not simply knowledge, information. There's lots of people who know lots of stuff. But biblically speaking, wisdom is, is knowledge applied in life, practically. So in Proverbs we read, wisdom, uh, sorry, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord is when we understand who God is, what God's like, and who we are, and, and what it means to live in relationship with God. That's biblical wisdom. And so that's what Paul wants. He wants their knowledge of God through their relationship with him to grow, their insight, their moral insight, to understand how to apply that knowledge in their lives. He, he wants that to abound as well or to shape 
their love, if you will. A third thing that Paul prays for is that they would discern what counts. Verse 10 begins, so that you may be able to discern what is best. This is something Paul prays for the Philippians. That, that, in, that, that not only they would have an increase in knowledge and depth of insight, but, but that that would lead them, that would allow them to discern well what is best. Uh, the, the point is that not everything counts. Not everything matters. Later in this letter, Paul is going to warn the Philippians with, with these words. Speaking of those who are contending, not in their congregation, he's just warning about the, the Judaizing threat the church faces. That is, some are going around to Gentile churches and say, well, to really be right with God, you need to follow Jewish boundary markers. So men, you need to be circumcised. So Paul reacts to that. He say, he'll say later in this letter, uh, he'll warn them about them with these words, those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. His point is that, that those who think physical circumcision matters, those who think that that is what counts are wrong. It doesn't. It's not about external boundary markers of Judaism that count. It's not being externally religious that counts. He's going to say instead in chapter 3, 3, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul wants them to be able to discern what really counts, what matters. And he wants them to pour their lives into those things. And he prays that they might have discernment so that they could do that. The fourth thing he prays is that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Look with me at the beginning, uh, at the beginning of verse 10. So that you may be able to discern what is best, we just looked at it, may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, we'll come to in a minute. Verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Paul is gazing into the future. He, a future that is secure. He's already expressed in the Thanksgiving that he is confident that God who began a good work in them will carry it to completion. And so now he is praying for the Philippians that, that on that day, that the day when history comes to a close, the day that Christ returns, that on that day, the Philippians will be standing there full of the fruit of righteousness. Now, I want to contend that the righteousness being spoken of here is not the righteousness that we are given through faith in Christ. The Philippians already have that. If you're not a believer, let me just speak to you for a moment. Uh, Christianity is not about us cleaning ourselves up and getting right with God. Christianity is not about our performance for God. It's about Christ's performance for us, what Christ did, his death on the cross. And through faith in Christ, uh, we receive forgiveness. Christ bears the penalty for your sin and my sin. He goes to the cross, he suffers for it, and, and our sins are washed away. We are forgiven. And we also receive his righteousness. We, as a gift, as a robe, we're clothed with his perfection, with his obedience. That's, that's the doctrine of justification. That is already true of the Philippians. They are in Christ. That's not what Paul is praying for here, that they would receive Christ's justification. That's theirs. He is praying for, that they would be full of the fruit of righteousness. This is the fruit that comes out of our relationship with Christ. It's about the manifestation of the character of Christ in our lives. The fruit of living a life that is shaped by the cross. 
Denying self, taking up our cross and following Jesus. We looked at that verse last Sunday in our conversation. It's it's about the transformation of our lives. That we would be shaped by Christ. Here's how James Montgomery Boyce writes, says it. He says, one of the reasons why God has saved us is that we might be fruitful Christians. He has not saved us merely that we might be free from judgment and go to heaven when we die, but that the character of Jesus Christ might be reproduced in us while here on earth. We are to live in the flesh, but not of the flesh. We are to do good works that Christ might be glorified and that we might be brought to faith in Him. So these are the four things that Paul prays in the way of growth, progress for the Philippians, that they would grow, that their love would abound more and more, that they would grow in their understanding, experiential understanding of God and insight so that they have the wisdom to discern what is best, what really counts, and pour themselves into that, and that on that day when Christ comes, their lives would be full of fruit. Let's ask our second question. Why are we supposed to grow? Verse 10, we read, you, so that you may be pure and blameless for that day, pointing again to the day that Christ returns. Uh, all, all this uh, into this phrase, so that, so that we may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Did my mic just go out? No, you can, you can hear me. Okay, sorry. Maybe it's my ears. Paul points to them to the day of Christ, the day on which they will stand before him full of fruit, the fruit of righteousness, and he tells them that he's praying that on that day they might be pure and blameless. Now, I don't know about you, but we can hear that, and again, if we, if we separate that from the truth that they are already justified in Christ, that they are in Christ, if we forget about Paul's confidence that he who began a good work in them will carry it to completion, we can, we can feel a little nervous at this point. That, that all of this growing that we're supposed to do, that he's praying for, is to produce, make us so that we are pure and blameless. And, and I would contend that many of us today in the church are a bit schizophrenic spiritually. That when we think about our relationship with God, it's, it's often shaped more by our perception of how we are doing. You know, kind of, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. And that, in our heart, I think if we're honest, we, when we're doing poorly, we may not feel so loved. And when we're doing better, we, we might actually be proud. But, okay, God's, you know, he loves me today. But, but that's not the gospel. The gospel says that, that Christ came while we were his enemies, that he saved us apart from works, that our salvation is only through faith in Jesus, and that when we trust Jesus, we are justified. We, we pass from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We are adopted. We sung some songs about that. We are adopted. We are daughters and sons of the king. And, and, and that doesn't go back and forth depending on how we're doing on a particular day. So our purity and blamelessness as far as being right with God isn't dependent on us, but Paul here prays that they would be on that day pure and blameless. So what's he talking about? I, I want to respond in two ways. It's first, let's look at the words Paul uses. The, the word pure here uh, connotes the idea of sincerity, sincerity of motives. There, there's a sense of authenticity. And I think that can be helpful. Because as Christians, uh, we, we know, we should know that that we need God's grace, that we are sinners saved by grace. And so we don't stand before the watching world and say, look at us, we've got it all together. No, we, we are beggars telling other beggars where they can find bread. 
And so we can stand with sincerity, this purity, just saying we are, we are saved by the grace of God. We don't have to hide. We don't have to pretend. There's no pretension. And this word blameless, it's a word that we actually encounter in Scripture a lot, right? Job was blameless. Uh, Noah was blameless. Elizabeth and Zechariah are said to be blameless. What does that mean? Does that mean to be sinlessly perfect? No, of course not. It doesn't. We encounter that over and over again, and, and that's not the sense. But here, in the context of the letter to Philippians, this sense of the word blameless, I think, is probably in Paul's mind, and that is that to not offend, that we would be blameless in relationship with others. We're not going to cause offense. And again, thinking about the love that he's praying for them to have for one another. As we think ahead to chapter 2 where he says, have the mind of Christ in your relationships with one another. As he tries to deal with this internal conflict, this internal strife within this church, to call them to this makes sense. But I also want to point you in another direction to speak of their purity and blamelessness. We need to understand that his desire for them is a desire for us. God's desire for us is that we would become who we already are. That is, through faith in Christ, we are redeemed. We are holy. We are adopted. We are pure. We are credited with the righteousness of Christ. We are, we are obedient. We, we, are, we are credited with Christ's perfect obedience. Those things are true of us in Christ. And the life of, of the Christian life, this life of sanctification, of growth in Christ is about learning to be who we already are. So that there would be congruence between who we are in Christ and who He's called us to be, that, that our lives would increasingly reflect His character, His likeness, that we would grow, in fact, in our humanity. You see, sin dehumanizes us. We were created in God's image. Our rebellion, our sin, actually makes us less human. And so when we're redeemed, this idea that we're simply redeemed so that someday when I die I can go to heaven is so wrong-headed. That's to assume that it doesn't matter what I do. I can continue to live a life of sin. I want to do that. It's to miss the point. Christ's redemption, yes, it saves us so that one day when we die we will be with Christ. But His salvation is about forming us now, shaping us to be who we were created to be. And through faith in Christ, that is true of us already. And now this Christian growth is about becoming that. And so Paul is praying that there will be congruence between their lives and what is already true of their lives in Christ. Third, what are the means by which we can grow? Well, the answer is quite simple. And in our text, two words in verse 11 modifying everything that comes before. I pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you uh, can discern what is best so that on that day you might be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness through Christ. When we repent and believe, we are made new. We are given Life, Christ by His Spirit indwells us. The truth is that in Christ, through faith in Christ, I no longer live, you no longer live, but Christ lives in you. Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. When we come to Christ, we are brought into union with Christ. He indwells us by His Spirit. I've said this to you before and I'll keep saying it. 
You cannot live the Christian life apart from Christ. I cannot live the Christian life apart from Christ. It is an impossible life. And yet we as a church hold up as our vision a desire to be growing deeper in our intimacy with Christ, closer in relationships with one another, bolder on mission for the lost. How can we put that before us when we can't do it? Well, that whole vision is is anchored to what? We say grounded in the gospel and empowered by the Spirit. That is, it is only as we remember Christ's finished work for us that through His death on the cross, we are forgiven, we are clothed with His perfection, we are made new, and that He has indwelt us by His Spirit, that is, we are empowered by His Spirit, by the gospel and Spirit, through the gospel and His Spirit at work in us, we, we can live this. All that Paul is praying for in the way of, of transformation in their lives comes through Christ. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' Jesus' largest block of teaching in the New Testament, in the Bible, this large block of of ethical teaching, this picture of what our lives are to look like, it begins with these words, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who come before Jesus with empty hands, knowing that they have nothing, that they are spiritually bankrupt. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is only through Christ that the life of a Christian is possible. It is only through Christ that we can experience growth. It is only through Christ that we will experience transformation. Jesus said that He is the vine, we are the branches. That apart from Him we can do nothing. So as Paul prays for the Philippians that their love may abound more and more, that they would grow in knowledge of God and spiritual insight, that they would be able to discern what counts, what really matters in life, that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness so that on that day they might be pure and blameless. It is all only through Christ. Progress in the Christian life, growth in the Christian life, transformation in in our lives as Christians is possible only through Christ. Fourth question, to what end? Again, as I said, this is a complex statement and it's a one sentence but it, it ends where it needs to end. That, that all, of, all of what Paul is praying for, all the, the growth, the progress, the transformation that he's praying so that that, that happens through Christ, his, he ends that, that it is all about his glory, the glory and praise of God. Christian obedience, Christian growth, Christian progress is not about attaining or securing or maintaining our status with God. It is all a gift. It is all His grace. It's not in order to be loved. It's not in order that we would be accepted, that we strive to obey. No, it's for His glory. That your life and my life is in fact worship. One of the unfortunate things is that we often refer to worship simply what we do when we sing. And that's worship, and it's wonderful, and it's rich, and it's what we're to do. But that's not all that's worship. Our lives, Monday through Sunday, are an act of worship that we live as followers of Jesus, seeking to grow, seeking progress, seeking to be transformed, not so that we would be loved, but because we are loved, we do it for His glory, for His praise. Paul will write later on in this letter, Chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on. That's his goal. That's the target. That's what he's aiming at. We have a tendency sometimes, or a danger we face, maybe a better way 
of putting it is to treat grace lightly. Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it cheap grace, where, where we have this mindset that because of God's grace, it doesn't matter how I live. And I want to say, because of God's grace, we are free to pursue obedience. We are free to pursue transformation, to become who He made us to be, empowered by His indwelling Spirit, empowered by the gospel truth that we are already loved, that, that we are loved by Him, saved by Him. We are His adopted daughters and sons. It is the glory of God that is ultimate in Paul's mind, his desire to see God get glory, God get praise, more and more glory, more and more praise for him. What is the Spirit saying to you this morning? What will progress in your Christian life, in your walk with Jesus look like? What growth is Jesus calling you to? Not by your own strength, and not in any way to contribute to who you already are in Christ. Salvation is all grace. But now Paul prays this, that there would be progress, that they would grow in these ways. So as one dearly loved by God, as one already purified through Christ's sin-atoning death, as one indwelt by His Spirit, through Christ in you, through His power at work in you, what is Christ calling you to? It is so easy to take our eyes off the goal. It is so easy to live for lesser things, to forget what it is we are to aim for. Again, we don't aim to grow in order to secure anything but God's glory. More glory for Him. More praise for Him. That is to be our aim, that we would grow for His glory. Grace is not against effort, it's against merit. Here, as we look at these verses in Paul's prayer report, we get to listen in to this apostle as he prays for these beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. And he's praying for them. What he's praying for them is God's desire for us too. He's praying that they might grow, that they might progress in their lives as God's redeemed so that they may faithfully live as an outpost of heaven in the midst of their city of Philippi. That's God's call for us, that we would be transformed, that we would live lives of the future, that we would live lives that are congruent with who He has made us already, that increasingly we would have this love, that, that we would love unconditionally, that, that we would know God because we walk with God, that we would discern what is best, what counts, what matters, and pour our lives into those things, that our lives would be filled with fruit of righteousness, that others would look at us and we'd be able to point them to Jesus, and that Jesus would be glorified. That's the goal to which we are called. That's the goal for which Paul prays. May we surrender ourselves to Him, to His work, in us for His glory. Amen. We're going to celebrate communion together. And so if you are online, I, I trust you got my email reminder yesterday. Uh, just grab your, uh, your juice or wine and bread. In a moment, I'm going to invite James and Ann to come forward. They're going to serve you uh, just an individual cup. Uh, the cup has a little wafer at the top, so there's two things to peel back on.